You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today, I have some very exciting news for you all. I love the fact that every week, tens of thousands of you sit down and listen to the podcast. In my head, of course, I see this happening as one mass movement, a small part of the world stopping what they're doing and having a good old listen to me talking to you about English queens. Of course, that's not what actually happens. I mean, I have the download stats to prove it. But I do love how we are building a little community together, an army of Queens of England fans. And what do all armies need? Well, they need uniforms. And so I have created some merch. I got the idea from this from one of the podcast's most vocal fans, Sari Graham, who tweeted me a little graphic a couple of weeks ago that says, What is a queen without a king? Historically speaking, more powerful. Suffice to say, I totally loved that, and thought it would look great on a t-shirt. And so, that's what I've decided to do. But why stop with t-shirts? I asked everyone on the Facebook page what kinds of merch they would like to see, and I got a ton of responses from you all, so thanks to everyone for that. So we have t-shirts in the male and female variety, a tank top, a mug, and a tote bag. All perfect for the summer months ahead. Just imagine how cool you look on the beach with all that sweet swag. Impress all your friends with your A-plus historical feminism and show your support for the podcast. They're all available for pre-order right now and will be available for the next fortnight. Then they'll get printed and shipped. Isn't that exciting? The Queens of England podcast is now officially a thing. Just go to queensofenglandpodcast.com forward slash merch. That's queensofenglandpodcast.com forward slash M-E-R-C-H and order your stuff today. Like I said, they're only going to be there for two weeks and then I may never sell them again. So please, please don't miss out. To stick with the theme of you all sending me money, I would like to thank my latest donators on Patreon. And there are a lot of you this week. Lydia, Melissa, George, Diana, Kathy, Jeanette, Amy, Ashley, and Diane. I would like to thank Ashley and Diana in particular, who wrote very kind emails that I'm very sorry I've not yet got around to replying to. Keep up with the latest news from the podcast on Facebook and Twitter. All the links are below in the show notes, along with the all-important merchandise link. Hint, hint, go buy merch. Finally, I was up all night on Thursday watching the results come in from our general election here in the UK, and that has had the effect of making me feel like I've just done a long-haul flight. If I sound tired, it's because I am. But the show must go on, so let's get going. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 51, Catherine Howard, No Will But His.
Catherine Howard's husband was 50 years old upon their marriage, and as I've said previously, he was not the strapping young man that had once been the hunkiest hunk in all of Europe. Not only was he balding and overweight, but he suffered from piercing pains in his legs so severe that it enraged him. Low betide anyone who came to the king with a problem when his gout flared up. He was a dangerous man at the best of times, but more so than ever in the latter part of his reign. Being close to the king did not save you if he turned against you. He'd already executed a wife, his most competent chief minister, and was on the verge of killing the other before he died. He'd also executed some of his own best friends, most notably Henry Norris. This is all to say that many in the court realised that they had to walk delicately on eggshells around the king. It took subtlety, caution, and experience to survive and thrive. Say what you like about Catherine Howard, but these are not qualities that she had in abundance, and it would cost her dearly. But for now, all was rosy. The period after his marriage to Catherine was an Indian summer for Henry. The presence by his side of an almost ostentatiously young, beautiful and charming queen seems to have breathed new life into him. The French ambassador wrote that he had, quote, never seen the king in such good spirits or in such good humour. His happiness led him to reward his new wife by making her a rich woman. He gave her not only lands formerly owned by Jane Seymour, but much of those formerly owned by attainted lords such as Cromwell. This gift fest was not solely granted unto Catherine, as her entire household benefited from the royal bounty. These were good times to be a Howard. So who were these ladies who surrounded Catherine? Well, at the top were her great ladies, who were largely from the ranks of the noblest noblewomen in the land, mostly relatives of the king or of Catherine. Below them were the ladies of the privy chamber, who had the most intimate jobs, such as dressing her, wiping her bum on the royal stool, that sort of thing. Of these, the most important was Lady Rochford. Remember her? You may remember her better by her marriage name, Jane Boleyn, the wife of Thomas Boleyn. It had been her testimony that had caused her husband and sister-in-law to be accused and convicted of incest. Most of these women were much older than Catherine. Indeed, most of them were old enough to be her mother, and so consequently she tended to be closer to some of the ladies further down the pecking order, which was packed by her former friends from the good old days at Chesham and Lambeth. I already spoke last week about the appointment of Joan Bulmer to become a Lady of Honour, but she was not the only fellow graduate of the House of Agnes Howard to join her household. There was also Catherine Tilney, Alice Wilkes, and Margaret Morton. Now, some historians have used this as a stick with which to clout Catherine around the head, saying how naive she was to surround herself with people who knew her dark secrets, people who knew about Frances Derham, that she had not been a virgin when she had married the king. However, there are some reasons why this may have been the case. One is that these ladies may have taken the same tack as Joan Bulmer and used a bit of light blackmail to get themselves these plum jobs. There is also the fact that these ladies were all within the Howard clan, and part of the master plan here was to pack the court with as many of them as possible. But equally, we cannot discount the human element. Catherine was a very young woman, probably about 18 or so, and though she did have a support base, these were largely powerful men who didn't really have her best interests at heart. Her husband was a man nearly three times her age, whom she admitted often scared her. Is it so surprising that she would seek to surround herself in her intimate chamber with familiar faces. But before we start talking more about what was actually happening in the Queen's bedchamber, it's worth looking at just how successful a Queen Catherine Howard was, as this so often gets forgotten. Now, you all know by now the standard four criteria by which a consort was judged. In fact, it hasn't changed since the start of our story, and quite frankly, it's barely changed now. These are, say it all together now, 
fertility, advantage, morality, and influence. Let's see how Catherine stacks up. Firstly, let's deal with a pretty easy one in fertility. One of Catherine's principal attractions, possibly the only one so far as Henry was concerned, was her youth and beauty. Both of these was considered pretty much bywords for fecundity, as beauty was considered a divine virtue. Now we all know about Henry's erectile dysfunction. I think we can all agree I don't need to talk any more about his penis. But it does seem that he and Catherine did successfully have sex on many occasions. However, Catherine did not have any children during her 16 months as queen. As with Jane Seymour, it seems that being crowned as queen was predicated on the production of the much-desired spare, a backup in case something happened to young Prince Edward. The fact that Catherine was never crowned shows just what a disappointment this was. It's worth saying, though, that instant pregnancy seems to be one of those things that courtiers and kings always expected, but didn't always get. Henry had been spoiled by the fact that both Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn had gotten pregnant within weeks of having sex with him for the first time. But let's not forget that Jane Seymour had taken almost a year on the throne before getting pregnant, and other queens had taken far longer than that. Coupled with Henry's sexual problems, it's not surprising that the king and queen were childless during their short marriage, but it was certainly a disappointment to Henry. Moving on, her marriage offered very little diplomatic advantage at all for Henry. The great winner of the whole thing was in fact the Duke of Norfolk, who, after his victory over Cromwell, saw himself become the most dominant man at court after Henry. In terms of piety, well, her reign has a great big cross against it because of the adultery for which she was convicted, but even before that was discovered, this was not considered to be one of her strong suits. A problem here is that the kind of conventional piety on which we have been judging our queens was no longer in vogue. Religious practice was in flux. What did a pious queen look like in the second half of Henry's reign? Whatever it did look like, Catherine seems to have taken little notice. She attended mass when she should and went through all the motions, but she does not seem to have been a particularly pious woman. This is not to say that she was a humanist or even a Protestant, it just seems that she had little interest in affairs of the divine either way, and so she was happy to go along with the contemporary custom and play the part. But I doubt she gave God much of a thought either way. This is yet another failure of Agnes Howard, as giving her charges a spiritual education was one of the main duties of an educator. Victorian moralists are keen to say that this laxity was the reason why she turned into such a slutty hussy, but let's not pay too much attention to that nonsense, shall we? Finally, we turn to influence, and that's where things get a little interesting. We've talked a lot in the past about how queens that exerted considerable influence tended to be those who had already produced an heir and were experienced or from a very noble house. Catherine was none of these things, so you may have expected her to be pretty insignificant in courtly politics, but that's not really the case. She did not have as good a relationship with Princess Mary as Jane Seymour, Anne of Cleves or Catherine Parr, but they do seem to have gotten along okay for the most part. According to Yusha Chapuis, they allied together to persuade Henry to allow Mary to reside fully at court, which was a big step. That said, Mary seems to have had a degree of contempt for a stepmother, whose age was so similar to hers. A very serious girl, Catherine's energy and love of fun did not sit well with Princess Mary. She also took an interest in the young and still ostracised Princess Elizabeth, and so we can see Catherine's efforts as a continuance in the rehabilitation of Henry's bastardised daughters, which reached completion during the queenship of Catherine Parr. Let's not forget that the Princess Elizabeth was herself a Howard, being the daughter of Anne Boleyn, and so the two were natural allies. Had Catherine survived on the throne, it's possible that the two could have struck an alliance as close as Princess Mary had been with her own mother. 
One area in which Catherine attracted criticism was in profligacy. She has a reputation for being the fun queen, the party girl, and that does seem to have been something that was said of her at the time, as well as by modern writers. It was said by the Spanish Chronicle that, quote, The king had no wife who made him spend so much money in dresses and jewels as she did, who every day had some new caprice. In her own chambers, it was said that she, quote, did nothing but dance and rejoice. Now, these criticisms were not new or unusual. Many of our queens so far have been so criticised. Anne Boleyn, for example, was far more profligate. But these were not great times for the English economy, and Catherine did not have a wide enough base of support to be able to get away with it. While she remained largely aloof from the great court struggles between Norfolk and his enemies, she made sure that his allies and her friends were well rewarded for their loyalty. I've already discussed how some of her old friends from Lambeth got jobs in the household, but on her recommendation, she also got Lord William Howard the plum job of ambassador to France. Her brother became a gentleman of the King's Privy Chamber, and other family members found themselves with new lands or titles. These were all fairly understandable, but then she made what would turn out to be a fatal mistake. She invited her former flame, Francis Derham, to become her private secretary. For Catherine, there was no more dangerous man alive than Derham. He knew a secret that could bring her down in an instant, that she had not been a virgin when she married Henry, and that he had a claim to her hand in marriage. We'll come back to this later, but I definitely think it's fair to say that she was hardly a queen shut away from the corridors of power, and if we take into account her age and lack of time in the role, I think it's fair to say that she was, at the very least, a middling queen when it came to influence. That said, she was not the most visible queen in English history, though again that has a lot to do with timing. She had become queen in the summer, and Henry by now had promoted the custom of nobles returning home at this time to tend to their estates and supervise the collection of the harvest. This meant a reduction in the size of the royal household. Henry and Catherine then spent most of these months on progress across the south of England and the Midlands. Those who observed the royal couple at that time remarked on how close and loving they were. It's taken as a given by many historians and writers that Catherine would have been disgusted with her husband. What could a young woman have in common with a man so much older than she and so much more sickly? It's no secret or surprise that Henry may be very taken with her. The French ambassador who visited them while they were on progress stated that, quote, The king is so amorous of her that he cannot treat her well enough. However, the feeling does appear to be mutual. While Henry was not in the best of health and was considerably older, it does appear that Catherine had affection for him, at least at first. After all, he had been the one to grant her this exalted status. Much like Jane Seymour, she chose as her motto something that displayed her deference to her husband. Un autre volonté que la sienne. For those of you who don't speak French, this has been translated several ways, but the one I prefer is, no will but his. Catherine had two major groups of enemies. One such group was the general enemies of the Howards, those who had been previously loyal to Cromwell. This was not really her fault. Though she had been active in promoting those loyal to her family, Norfolk was the one doing most of the alienating with his ruthless power grabs. The problem was that Catherine was the figurehead of the Howards, the Patsy. The enemies knew that if they could take her out, then the whole deck of cards could collapse. Related to these were Protestant zealots. The Howards were seen as arch-religious conservatives, a clan devoted to rolling back as much of the religious reforms that had taken place since the Great Matter as was possible. As I said, Catherine was not particularly religiously minded in any direction, but she was the figurehead of the Howards, and so acted as a lightning rod for the Protestants, who wanted the process of reform to not just continue, but accelerate. The second group were people far closer to home. 
Catherine was a very flawed queen in many respects, and I think that a lot of it comes down to upbringing. She'd been brought up almost exclusively among women, except of course for the dalliances by night with Mannix and Derham, and many of those women were still surrounding her when she became queen. The main problem in many ways is that she often forgot her place. She was a terrific gossip around her ladies, forgetting that she was the queen and therefore should be relatively aloof of such things. She also, before rumours even began to circulate of her own murky... If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. She passed, started to gain reputation for immorality. This is not for her own actions per se, but the alleged blind eye that she gave to the loose morals of the ladies in her service. The most famous of these was Margaret Douglas. She was Henry VIII's niece, and so her marriage prospects were tightly controlled by the king. You didn't want women of royal blood marrying the wrong sort. Well, she had already caught a controversy in Anne Boleyn's household by becoming engaged to one prominent member of the Howard clan, who would later die in the tower as punishment. Well, she hadn't learned a lesson, because now she was carrying on an affair with Catherine's brother while in her service. Henry was furious when he discovered this. The brother was dispatched abroad on military service, and Douglas was sent away. Keeping an eye on her household and ensuring that proper decorum was maintained was considered a vital tenet of queenship, and this was compounded by the fact that it was her own brother who was the man involved. It seems impossible that Catherine didn't know, but her liberal attitude towards sex and affairs led her to turn a blind eye. There was also another scandal within her own household, with one of her maids of honour, Dorothy Bray, had an affair with the married William Parr, whose sister would of course eventually replace Catherine on the throne. Catherine was meant to be the guardian of her maid's reputations, 
but she seems to have been actively encouraging them in these affairs. Moreover, it raises questions about the Queen's own moral probity. If she tolerated affairs in her own household, would she engage in one herself? Gareth Russell sums it up rather well, I think, when he says, quote, The delicious, titillating rustle of gossip and innuendo accompanied the men of the privy chamber who called on the Queen's ladies to flirt, tease, converse, and dance. Queen Catherine was supposed to occupy the role of goddess among nymphs, an object of collective adoration, but never a participant. If she had read the lay of the land properly, then she would have realised from this episode what the dangers could be and stamped down on the impropriety in her own household, which was beginning to resemble more and more the sex den that she had grown up in at Chesham Park and Lambeth. After all, if you have skeletons in your closet, you'd be advised to keep the doors closed firmly shut, not air it out for all to see. And of course, the most prominent set of bones in Catherine's closet was Francis Derham. He had struck an unlikely alliance with Agnes Howard, Catherine's former guardian. Agnes knew about Derham's claim to have evidence of a pre-contract of marriage between Catherine and himself, but was worried that, should it be revealed, the ensuing firestorm could engulf her. So, she teamed up with him in an attempt to cover her own tracks. However, what she failed to realise was that by doing so, she was removing the last trace of plausible deniability. It could be proved now that she was well aware of Catherine's past, and the possibility that her marriage with the king was invalid. Derham had a secret that could be the making of him, but could also lead to a very gruesome death. He could bring down a lot of people, but would be signing his own death warrant. Using this to his advantage would take some careful politicking and diplomatic skill, and require him to act with subtlety, rationality, and cunning. Sadly for everyone, Derham was not that man. Gareth Russell describes him as being, quote, impulsive, besotted, possessive, and loquacious. He was still in love with Catherine, and seemed to refuse to accept the notion that she was married to another man, much less the king. To play his cards right, he would need to disentangle his emotions and feelings for Catherine, but he just couldn't do that. This was all further complicated by the fact that he was not the only member of Catherine's male fan club at court, because of course, there was also Thomas Culpepper, another one of her former flames. Now, a key time in the Queen show of Catherine Howard is the spring of 1541. The winter months had been the high point of her queenship. She'd presided over the Christmas court and been figured prominently in all the frivolities and celebrations that that entailed. She'd received foreign visitors, as well as the successful reunion with Anne of Cleves. But things began to go wrong in late February, when Henry became ill with tertian fever, which was further complicated by his leg ulcers. Such was the intense pain that he suffered that many thought he would die. Of course he survived, but Henry's mood and paranoia was always darkened if he was in pain, and so he retreated into threats and rages. Catherine suffered from these as much as any, and was banned from visiting him. This rejection must have been confusing and distressing for the Queen, more so because most of her main allies were absent from court. This continued through Lent and into Easter, and it seems that Catherine reacted to this by seeking solace in those that showed her affection. She also fell out with Norfolk in this time. Why she did is not entirely clear, but it's probably due to her becoming increasingly annoyed at his interference. Norfolk was not really a people person, and viewed those around him as just players in the orchestra that he was conducting. He also had a furious temper which didn't help, and it seems to be a feature of Catherine's life that she did not trust or feel that she needed to pay much attention to authority figures. Bereft of support from her political bedrock, and frustrated by her major court backer, 
she sought it from those in her private apartments, not realising that they were playing their own game too and didn't have her best interests at heart. One ally that she did have in her own household was Lady Rochford, Anne Boleyn's sister-in-law, with whom she became very close to the exclusion of all her other ladies. She was very much Catherine's enabler and exacerbated many of her worst qualities, indiscretion and recklessness. She was in her mid-thirties, going on twice Catherine's age, which made her a role model for the Queen, and it seems that their shared love of gossip and scandal brought them close together. Catherine ordered that none of her ladies be allowed to enter her bedchamber without her express permission. This paranoia on her part only led to rumours starting to build about her conduct, and the fact that many of them knew her history with Francis Derham didn't help. It also didn't help that Derham had a big mouth. One account mentions that one courtier reprimanded him once for remaining sat down in the Queen's presence when everyone else was respectfully standing. Derham sent a message in reply, saying, quote, Tell him that I was one of the Queen's counsel before he knew her, and shall be when she hath forgotten him. This was not just a piece of unseemly bragging. This was a man of lowly noble background making a bold claim about his influence over the Queen. She was forced to tell him to pipe down, but one thing she did not need was increased rumours about her links with Francis Derham. But of course, Henry and Derham were not the only men in her life, because it's now time to reintroduce Thomas Culpepper to the board. To remind you, he was a distant cousin of Catherine's, of lowish nobility, but was a favourite of the king as well. He was around the same age as Derham and Mannix, so about five years or so older. One thing that I did not tell you last time was that he was not only a bit of a womaniser, but had a very ugly past. According to one account, he had, quote, violated the wife of a certain parkkeeper in a woody thicket, while, horrid to relate, three or four of his most profligate attendants were holding her at his bidding. Now, this story may not be true, but he certainly was an inveterate womanizer with a very nasty streak. A romantic hero? He most certainly was not, but he is described in many accounts as being a dashing and handsome man and also an accomplished sportsman. Now, we know that they had a brief dalliance when she first arrived at court, but before Henry showed serious interest in her. Well, now, in a round Easter time, when Henry's mood towards everyone was still black as pitch, they became reacquainted. Lady Rochford, beginning her infamous role as Catherine's wingwoman, arranged the meeting to be held in secret. There, Catherine gave him a black cap as a gift that she bid him keep hidden until he got back to his quarters. He actually didn't respond well to this, saying, quote, Why did you not this when you were a maid? To which she angrily replied, If I had known you would have these words, you should never have had it. The giving and receiving of gifts was considered the beginning of the process of courtly love, and it's interesting that it seems to be Catherine who made the first move here. This wasn't about her being systematically wooed and chased by some rapacious young man with a devil-may-care attitude, though that does seem to describe Culpepper quite well, to be fair. This was Catherine, feeling isolated and alone, in a situation for which she was never prepared, seeking out comfort and a bit of fun. Catherine was unimpressed with Culpepper's reaction, and so her interest in him cooled for a little while. But then it was peaked again. He became ill, and she became so worried that she regularly sent food to him through one of her page boys. Again, this was technically not doing anything wrong, but it was an unusual show of concern by a queen for someone outside of her own gender and household. When their affair began is unclear, but whenever it was, it became a serious operation to conceal and maintain. Lady Rochford was key to all of this. 
At every step on the royal progress, she would stake out the Queen's proposed quarters and get the lay of the land, ensuring that there was a discreet way in which Culpepper could come visit the Queen. If there wasn't, then nothing would happen. If there was? Well, let's just say that Rochford made sure that they remained undisturbed. One such occasion was at Lincoln, which would later be related in the investigation into the whole affair. Catherine and Rochford slipped away from the court party back to their quarters, and the door was then locked. Culpepper then picked the lock and made his way inside. Then they all went to the Queen's toilet chamber of all places, one assumes in case someone came looking for the Queen in the bedroom. Rochford then, and I'm not joking, had a nap in the corner while the two lovebirds engaged in some, quote, fond communication. Her ladies, not knowing that Culpepper was in there, must have been a little confused why Catherine and Rochford were spending so much time chatting in the loo. This would not be the only liaison that Culpepper and Catherine had on this trip, and the story does now begin to take the shape of a rather salacious rom-com, with a lot of sneaking about, furtive glances, meeting in strange places away from prying eyes. At some point on this trip, Catherine told Culpepper that she was in love with him, and he did the same. It's impossible for me to overstate just how important this was. A queen engaging in adultery was nothing short of treason. You did not bring the monarchy into disrepute like that, nor endanger the security of the line of succession. I've already brought up reasons why Catherine did this. Her personality and upbringing, which gave her a reckless lack of respect for authority and love of scandal. Her isolation from support, except from some people who she should never have trusted. But why did Culpepper do this? He knew what the penalty was for violating the Queen. He may have even seen the punishments meted out to the men who had been convicted of sleeping with Anne Boleyn. He was almost literally dicing with death here, and he knew it. He had not started this, so it seems unlikely that he was as infatuated with her as she was with him. He also does not seem to have had a malicious intent. This was far too risky a game to play, and nothing he did during the affair supports that theory. Maybe he thought that, with the king in poor health, a marriage to the queen after his death could make him stronger? That's possible. But to me, while we'll never know the truth, there is a simple explanation for it all. Catherine was an attractive, charming, desirable young woman with a great deal of largesse. Moreover, she was an attractive, charming, desirable young woman with largesse who wanted him. That kind of thing would turn the head of many a man throughout history. And so, the star-crossed lovers began their affair proper, and as their love deepened, discretion ceased to become a priority. It was almost as if they were so close, or perhaps so naive, that they forgot the vital importance of keeping it all a secret. She started to behave differently, more erratically. She and Culpepper began to ignore even the most basic of precautions. Her ladies saw how she looked at Culpepper, how the doors of her bedchamber were regularly barred. Remember that they all knew that she and Culpepper had had a brief dalliance before she got married. But crucially, a large number of them had been with Catherine at Chesham and Lambeth, and so knew that she had history with ill-judged love affairs. At some point around this time, Culpepper again fell ill. Catherine still had enough sense that she couldn't go visit him, but she did write, sending a letter in the care of one of her servants. This is the only correspondence between them two that survives, and so I'll read it in full. Quote, Master Culpepper, I heartily recommend me unto you, praying you to send me word how that you do. It was showed me that you were sick, the which thing troubled me very much till such time that I hear from you, praying you to send me word how that you do. For I never long so much for a thing as I do to see you and to speak with you, the which I trust shall shortly be now. 
that which doth comfort me very much when I think of it, and when I think again that you shall depart from me again, it makes my heart die to think what fortune I have, that I cannot be always in your company. If my trust is always in you, that you will be as you have promised me, and in that hope I trust upon still, praying you that you will come to me when my Lady Rochford is here, for then I shall be best at leisure to be at your commandment. Thanking you, for that you have promised me to be so good unto that poor fellow, my man, which is one of the griefs that I do feel to depart from him. For then I do know that no one that I dare trust to send to you, and therefore I pray you take him to be with you, that I may sometime hear from you one thing. I pray you to give me a horse for my man, for I had so much ado to get one, and therefore I pray send me one by him, and in so doing I am, as you said, as for... And thus I take my leave of you, trusting to see you shortly again, and I would you was with me now that you might see what pain I take in writing to you. Yours, as long as life endures, Catherine. P.S. One thing I had forgotten, and that is to instruct my man to tarry here with me still, for he says whatsoever you bid him, he will do it. Isn't that sweet? Well, Culpepper is a shady character, to say the least and Catherine was acting with an unbelievable amount of recklessness. It's hard not to root for her, especially as her husband was far from being a saint himself. But sadly, the time was approaching when everything will fall apart, as the Pandora's box of sex, secrets and lies that was her life up to this point was about to be opened. And sadly, once again, I will be a fearful tease and leave it there for this week. Next time, we will see the final fall of Catherine Howard, as she, Lady Rochford, Derham and Culpepper find themselves interrogated. They would need every ounce of charm, guile and luck that they had to survive the coming firestorm. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.